Welcome to the Grace Chapel podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. Before we get started, we want to remind you of the importance of being connected into a local church body. Podcasts are a gift from God, but are meant to be supplemental and not substitute or replace the gathering of the saints in worship in the word. With that being said, we pray that this teaching would bless you, equip you, and encourage you in your walk with Christ. All right, well, last Sunday, we kind of did a one-off message going through Psalm 90. It's a Psalm of Moses. Um, I think the title was something like Number Our Days, Number Your Days, something like that. And so now, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're gonna do just like a two-part quick mini-series going through the book of Haggai. I'm sure it's one of y'all's go-to books of the Bible. You're super familiar with it. Um, I know I teach on it all the time. Um, no, not, not all. In fact, I don't know that I've ever taught on this. I've probably read some verses from it, but really, truly taught through it. We're doing a little two-week series on this, and it's, it's sort of picking up and continuing a, the theme from last Sunday. And so last Sunday was number your days. This is consider your ways. And it's an exact quote, actually, from Haggai chapter one. He mentions it twice. Um, and it's not his words. It's, it's, it's a prophetic word from the Lord saying, consider your ways. And so we're just going to spend a couple weeks on this um, leading into our state of the church. And then on the other side of that, we're going to pick back up and complete our Built Together series. So for those of you who like the structure of knowing where things are going, that's, that's where we're heading. So let's pray. Let's invite the Lord to guide us in this and speak to us through his word this morning. Um, and that he would help us to consider our ways. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, that it's truth, that it's life-giving. Lord, that it, that it tethers us, it anchors us to reality. Well, there's so many other things that can distract or discourage along the way. And God, just the circumstances of life, the struggles that we face, uh, the things that we aim at and pursue, things that can feel so real and tangible and important. But God, I, th I thank you that you are the true source of life. Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so God, would you, would you just, um, Lord, if, if we're right on track with where you've got us, I pray this would be just a breath of, of fresh wind and encouragement. God, just to stay the course walking with you living for your kingdom first. And Lord, if there's any, any way in us, individually as a body, Lord, where you wanna do a little realigning, a little reminding, God, I pray that we would hear your Holy Spirit prompt and we'd be responsive to you and what you wanna say. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let me just start by letting the book introduce itself. So let's just start by reading Haggai chapter one, verses one and two. We will go through all of chapter one together this morning. So let's just pick this up. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
All right, so where are we here? What's probably more familiar to us is Nehemiah. You guys know the story of Nehemiah? Um, that's probably what's most familiar to us, but the this, this season of Israel's history that we're in here is they have been in Babylonian captivity. They have been out of the land and they are now being enabled to come back into the land and reestablish Jerusalem as a city, rebuild the temple and, and like set up home there. Now they're still under the rule of another kingdom. The Medes and the Persians have come in and and kind of taken over from the Babylonians. They're now sort of the ruling world power, world leader, at least in that that part of the world there. And so, um, but they they have allowed Israel to return home. And we're gonna look at some of that in a minute. And so what we're familiar with in Nehemiah really picks up about a generation after this, 50 to 70 years after this. And so there's kind of these waves, these groups of people that started coming back into the land. And so um, Zerubbabel, there's a great uh, baby name for you if, if you're expecting this year. Um, old, maybe you call him Zeb or something, I don't know. Anyways, um, he's, he's the, the leader for Israel. He's the one coming in and leading. Now he kind of is gonna have the title of like, prince or governor or something like that, but he's in the line of David. He, he is in the ruling line. Um, in fact, if, if you go do your nerdy Bible reading in Matthew and Luke and you read through those genealogies instead of skipping over those names listed, you know, one after the other, he's in there. He's in the line of Christ. Um, and so he's coming in not as a true king, but he's allowed to have some place of leadership. And so this is phase one. This is group one, first generation coming back into the land. And where Haggai is picking up, this passage right here, this is 16 years in. So they've been back in the land for 16 years. They're getting settled in. And then what we're familiar with, with Ezra and the Nehemiah is like kind of a generation later going, hey guys, we're already a little off track. And there's some like reformation needed. And so Ezra's bringing the sense of, of reformation and getting back on track and picking up the word and living according to God's ways. And Nehemiah's coming along to say, hey, we really didn't finish the job. And we're, we're sort of exposed and not protected and we need to rebuild the wall. And so this is the generation prior to that that kind of dipped their toes into coming back into the land. And so the, the sense of this is like, there's stuff before them to do there's new territory that's exciting, but during the course of their generation, there's unfinished business. And as I was kind of drawn to, to this, oddly enough, like I wasn't really drawn to this because we're about to go through a remodel and move into property. It's actually something that's really been on my heart is where we're gonna be on the other side of that. Where we're gonna be a year from now and five years from now. It's the reason we've been doing this Built Together series for a few months because while the the property and the building is important and valuable and enables uh, hopefully God's kingdom to be advanced and people's lives to be touched, the reality is temple is sort of this this home base, this anchor point, but it's, it's a way of living. It's a way of operating where the way we live individually and as a people is really living with kingdom mentality. He's the king. He runs my life. He governs us as a people. And so 
my desire is as excited as I am to get into the building, I know the parts of me, I was just talking about this with Zach and Bree at dinner the other night. I know there's parts of me that are just kind of like, man, it'll just feel nice to be settled in there. And for uh, in a lot of ways in my own heart, it's like a finish line I'm trying to get to. Like, wouldn't that just be great? And then, man, I'd be good to just kind of coast in there for a little while. It'll just feel really good. And I think there's a part of that that's good, right? Like it feels good to come home and have a place. And, but there's a part of me that I know is like, I don't wanna just get in and just kind of coast. And I'm not talking about build it bigger, better. I don't mean that thing. I mean that sense of like, God, this place is here that we might worship you. And that the thing you wanna build in me personally and that you wanna build in our body, that we're committed to that. And we're living out of that for the long haul. And we're believing in what you wanna do in our midst here in this city. Is this making sense? Is this resonating? So you're gonna hear a lot of language that's around like, like building and you know sticks and stones and that sort of thing, but it's bigger than that. It's more than that. So let's, let's start by just giving a little bit of a history of this kind of rebuild and resettlement project, and then we'll get into the heart of what Haggai's talking about here. So um, the cool thing is this does overlap with uh, the book of Ezra especially. Um, the book of Ezra, the first half of it is really a recap of what's led up to Ezra's time. And then the second half talks about kind of Ezra and then into Nehemiah's time. But in the first half, it's kind of explaining how God's people ended up being able to go back into the land. And so let's start in Ezra chapter one. I'm gonna read verses one through four. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but it's such an incredible moment. Remember, Israel's in captivity. This new kingdom has come in and this this king of Persia now is prompted. Let's pick this up. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I love that. God stirs up the heart of a pagan leader. And there's a whole cool backstory that we just don't have time for this morning. But this bro was blown, out, blown away to find that his name was mentioned in Bible prophecy before he was even born. And so God gets this guy's attention. And so he makes a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and he also put it in writing. You don't have to remember this, but that'll be relevant next Sunday and I'll remind you of it. But he gives a verbal proclamation and he puts it in writing. Verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Like this is unbelievable. Like his kingdom has conquered and overthrown Babylon and taken over this massive region. And the Lord has like gotten his attention to go, whoa, like look what's been placed in my hand. And whether this last lasted his whole lifetime or was a key moment here in his life, he's got this sense of humility before the God of heaven and he's recognizing Israel's God. And he's, he's given me this kingdom. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Verse three, whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Like Cyrus is going, hey, that is a special place, uniquely marked 
by the God in heaven and it belongs to him and his people. And so all of you that are scattered throughout my kingdom, I'm encouraging you to respond to your God and to go rebuild your place, which is his place in Jerusalem. Go. He puts out the word. Verse four, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, this is incredible. Like he, he sets them out, commissions them to go. And, and part of what's amazing, if, if you go on and read through the rest of chapter one, I mean, he, he commissions the work. He encourages people in his nation to give to the work. He funds it. Like he sends money and resources. And he takes note of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had gotten a lot of the treasure out of the temple in Jerusalem and he sent it back with them, returned what had been stolen. This is, this is an amazing story. And so the people are commissioned. And so then Ezra records like a list of all the people who were rallied and who gathered. And, and the king puts the money in Zerubbabel's hands and says, go do this thing. And so he leads this group of people into their home that they have been away from all these years to rebuild and resettle. But take note of the specific message. Cyrus, is, his message is rebuild the temple. Not just go have a great nation or kingdom, go rebuild the temple. That's the Lord's house in his city, go rebuild it. And so the story continues a little bit. I'm just doing all this to bring us up to present moment with Haggai. Uh, in chapter three, I'd encourage you to read it. A couple of key things happen. They're now there and getting settled. And the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar to the Lord so that they can begin to, to, to follow all of the different rhythms of the life they had been commissioned to. And it's pretty interesting. The very first feast that they are at in the calendar when the altar is ready is the Feast of Booths, which commemorates being in the wilderness and having the tabernacle and, and kind of having a home in the midst of the temporary place before it becomes permanent. Pretty cool, isn't it? So that's Ezra 3. And then in the second half of Ezra 3, the next thing the people do is they lay the foundation. The altar's in its place. Now it's time to lay the foundation for the temple. And there is just this response that rises up in them as they lay this foundation. We're gonna read this together. Ezra 3, verses 11 through 13. And they sang responsively. This is at the dedication of the foundation. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Um, I'm forgetting now what psalm it is, but there's a good chance that what they're doing, it says they sang responsively. There's a psalm that repeats that over and over again. And, and it's, it's meant to be like a call and response psalm. So they were probably going through that psalm and just responding to the Lord and celebrating his goodness and his steadfast love that endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This was like a hallelujah moment. We are out of captivity. We're in our home where we belong. The foundation has been laid. This is exciting times. We're here and God is with us 
And this is incredible. And many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, like these are the people right at the end of their life, they saw what got torn down. And now they're seeing the foundation of it being rebuilt. And what they do? They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Let's just pause for a minute. This is how good God is. He is such an incredible redeemer that even the tears, the part of us that remembers what's been broken down and been lost, the years that feel as if they've been stolen, right? That the locust has eaten. But when God shows up and his people are responsive to him and he begins redeeming, there's weeping and there's joy. Both are intermingled together and it's all worship. We can give him our broken dreams. We can give him the lost years and we can celebrate his goodness now as he works redemptive purposes in our life. So they're dedicating themselves in this spot to the Lord. There's the altar. There's the foundation. Let's build. Well, as so often happens, right on the heels of this incredible taking of territory and and the work being started, the very next chapter, Ezra chapter four, adversity strikes. Opposition arises. Eventually the work is, it's, it's thwarted, it's difficult. They're not making headway because of the surrounding people who are resisting, who are causing problems for them. And then ultimately, um, when Cyrus passes and the new ruler comes in, that is not the same one that sent them. The opposition works against them and gets the new ruler to say the work needs to stop. And so the people of the land, I just want to read a sense of this, Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land, this isn't the Jewish people, this is the people there that are opposed to them. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The opposition, as I mentioned, became so strong that eventually, uh, the last verse of Ezra chapter four, then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so after a few years of getting started, getting the ball rolling, it stops. And they're still there and they're still living, but the temple stops being built. For 16 years, it lies dormant. Friends, this is real. This is real. Like when we, when we commit our hearts to the Lord, when we give him our life, when we set up the altar of our own lives, like, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you myself, my family. God, I'm, I'm dedicating my life to you. I want to live out of your purposes and your ways. Friends, there will be opposition. There will be the internal struggle, like they were afraid. The opposition rose up and it started to feel like a lot. And it was overwhelming and they were fearful about the struggle. 
And so there's, there's like internal stuff just in our own human frailty and weakness that can, that can rob us of what the Lord would have us step into. And friends, we have an enemy. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to resist and thwart the work of God and his people stepping into the things God has for them. Like, we need to hear this in the context of our own church body, like who we're called to as a people, but like, we need to hear this just in our own lives, in our homes, and the things God's called us to as we walk out our life with him. And recognize often the enemy's opposition, it comes right in the midst of taking that territory. I won't ask you to literally like do a show of hands, but man, how often do, do we take a step in a direction? Like we come to a moment of decision, we take a step in a direction. It feels like the right thing. God's hand is on it. He's commissioned it. It's time and I step into it and then everything hits. And how often that works to like knock me back, knock us back. And have you ever been in that place and then you even started to question like, is this right? Like, did I miss it completely? What's going on? This has happened to me a lot of times just since we've been here in Knoxville. (laughs) Y'all have heard many of those stories. I won't recount all of them now. But this is real and this happens. And so this this is the very situation where God's people have found themselves when the Lord prompts Haggai to say, hey, in this weird, stagnant, stuck place that they're now in, they think that this is not the time to rebuild the Lord's house. And so let's pick back up now. God's call to consider and return to the work at hand. Haggai chapter one, verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Man, don't you know when that message dropped, it was just like, ugh. Paneled houses, that's a very specific phrase. Probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But when that imagery of paneling is used in the Old Testament, this is like, this is like, I don't, I don't know any like modern versions of this. In my mind, it's like, this is to the nines. Like everything is, it's nice. Like we've, we've gone over the top. This is, this is like the houses are looking good, right? That all the focus, all the years has been into like making my place look great. Um, it's decked out, you know? That's the idea. It's not like he's upset that they have a roof over their head and the, built, the temple's not built. This is like you have invested your time, your energy, your resources into building your thing. And you're making it the best you can make it. And you've neglected the main thing. Out of distraction and pursuing other things, out of the opposition of the enemy, out of fear, You've pursued your own aims and you've neglected what's primary. That's what he's saying. Verses five and six. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's the first time that this phrase pops up. We'll come back to it later as well. Consider your ways. 
You've sown much and harvested little. You ever felt like you're in a season like that? Putting a lot in and not a whole lot's coming back out. You've harvested much, or sorry, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. Man, this is like me all through Christmas holidays here. (laughs) You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever felt like you're just living that? (laughs) It's like, guys, you're just, you're missing it here. Now, this isn't a call to a prosperity gospel. This isn't like, well, hey, if you do all the right stuff over here, then all of a sudden, now you are gonna be living large. It's not that. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's a priority gospel. You have gotten your priorities out of order and you can't figure out why everything isn't adding up because the main thing ought to be the main thing. And listen, this isn't just an Old Testament message. Like Jesus talks about this in many places. Here's one from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. That never stops. There's always the culture around us has other aims. And the same as it was in Haggai's day where it was easy for them to blend in with the people around him. Notice the opposition stopped when they stopped building God's temple. They weren't in tension now with the people around them from the other culture. In fact, they were intermarrying with them. They were realigning their lives with the culture around them. Because what the enemy wanted to resist was a people set apart for God because that changes things when he's king and he's in charge. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. We're always gonna be surrounded by people who are pursuing other aims as primary. And so yet, here we are, anxious. What am I gonna eat? What am I gonna wear? What am I gonna drink? Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. This isn't about neglecting things. God knows you need those, but what do we do first? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Haggai's phrase there, consider your ways. That word consider, it's more than one word. It's really in and of itself a phrase that means set your heart upon. Set your heart upon. This isn't like a take a quick glance. This is like slow down and in the depths of your heart, would you really truly ponder your ways? And that word ways, it literally means the road that you are on, the journey that you are taking, the direction that you have set. And like when you stop and consider the road, it's like, well, what's all the stuff that's led me up to this place in the road? And it's where is this road going? Not just where I am right now. Let me play this thing out. Where does this lead? You know, it's, it's navigation is a funny thing. And, and I, maybe this isn't super relevant to us because our phones just tell us where to go and we just trust them blindly. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm setting out to head downtown after church, this seem about right? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have my compass with me this morning. I don't actually have a compass. Um, 
right? And if I go, okay, I'm gonna set out and head straight downtown. And if, if I start out just a slight little degree this way, I miss it completely. Because as I travel that direction over a consistent period of time, I get further and further removed as that planes out from where I was supposed to be. And what can seem like such a small little step sets a course that heads in a completely different direction. He's saying, Haggai's saying, the Lord is saying, slow down, stop for a minute. Consider, like reflect deeply within your heart, what road am I on? What road am I on? Is the main thing the main thing? Am I seeking first his kingdom above all else? Verse seven, the phrase is repeated. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. This is really the whole thing right here, verses seven and eight. The Lord takes pleasure in dwelling with us. He's like, guys, do the work. Create the space for the place where I come and dwell with you. My temple is my house. And I meet my people in my house because it's our house. We meet there together. And I take great pleasure in being with you. This is especially good news to us now in New Testament days, in the days of the church Because guess what? As excited as I am to gather in a building a little bit down the road and worship together, where's the temple? Am I making the space? Is this place, is my heart, is my body, is my mind, is this place his home? Has it been dedicated to him? Not just one day back there did I build an altar and say this belongs to you. Not at some point in my life I laid a foundation that said I belonged to Christ. Like, did I let him finish and complete the work? Has he taken over? Am I letting him build what he wants to build? Am I dwelling with the Lord? Does he dwell with me? It's his pleasure to do that. It's his pleasure to do it. But listen, he is to be glorified. Not me. I'm not to be glorified. My plans, my ideas, my dreams aren't to be glorified. He's to be glorified. It it frustrates me. I don't even know if that's the right word. I sometimes just get so stunned at how off track I get and how quickly I put myself back on the throne of my life and just pursue what I want and what my ideas are, and what my dreams are, and how often I find myself asking God to come bless my ideas and my dreams as if they're his, and then surprised when it doesn't seem to be working out so well because we get things totally out of order. It's his house. He's God. He's the king. He delights to dwell with me. It's gonna be really good to be there. It'll realign everything and put me back on the right track, but but will I live out of this, being in the place where he dwells, where he's king and he's glorified? Verse nine, 
You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I've called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Why are things not good? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is a reminder from Haggai to understand like what the temple is about. It's not about just the building and the structure. It's everything that goes with it. It, It's orienting ourselves to a way of life that's based around who God is. It's aligning myself with his presence. Like it starts there. I align myself with his presence. And then I align myself to his calendar. Like not just creating space somewhere in my calendar for him, like his calendar. Like I realize there's some beautiful freedom that we have in Christ. Like he fulfilled the feasts. He is, he is all the feasts. And he fulfilled all the sacrifices. And we don't have to like religiously keep to this strict calendar. But there, there's something about what God instituted with his people, the consistency of, of time and space and calendar that kept them in the rhythms of like, this is God's world that he made. And there are rhythms to this life I'm living. And it's rhythms and things that he has set up. And so have, am I aligning myself to, to not only dwell in his presence, but I'm going, I'm going, God, this is actually your calendar, not mine. And so I'm aligning to his calendar. I'm aligning to his priorities. See, t- temple life is about, like, it's, it's an anchor point that sets the course for his people. Are y'all tracking with me? Let's continue. This is about completing the work that was started. That's the idea. It's living a life of worship. See, in our context, it's not about physically building the space. It's about a life of worship. So I want to just move on now to the people's response. Haggai 1 verse 12. The people hear this message, and man, I I love this. I love their response, and I hope we take our lead from this in whatever way we ought to. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. I love that. They obeyed him, they hearkened to his voice, and he's their God. Like there's that, that personal thing. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. That's the proper response. They obeyed and submitted to God. They heard his call and they submitted to his rule. That's what a life of worship is. Like obedience and walking in the fear of the Lord, it's worshiping him as a way of life. It's realizing what we do on Sundays is a really cool special expression of worship. But like this few minutes on a Sunday morning together is just one expression of a way of living. 
And so that's, that's the call here from the Lord, and that's the call of Haggai here, is it's this invitation to live a life of worship. It's an invitation to reflect and go, Lord, are you really the king? Am I pursuing my aims or yours? Have I allowed the enemy to hijack what you want to do in my life? Have I allowed fear to derail me? Have I allowed intermingling with the ways of the culture around me and I've taken on their priorities instead of yours? It's a call and a reminder and an invitation to live a life of worship. Haggai gets one last prophecy in this chapter. After all the kind of hard things the Lord said and inviting them to consider and the people respond and obey, as they respond and obey, the Lord gives one last message. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. I love that. Guys, do you want the Lord to be with you? Then you be with him by aligning properly with him. Not by inviting him to come participate in your thing, but by us saying, Lord, we come to you. We've created space for you. This is your house. This is your temple. I belong to you. You will be worshiped here in my life. You will be honored here in my life. I will pursue your presence. I will submit to your calendar. I will give myself to your priorities. And God says, I'm with you. You abide in me and I abide in you. And what happens? We bear much fruit, much fruit. This is a life of worship. Will we, be, will we be present with him and allow ourselves to be ruled by him? We all worship. We're made to do it. We do it whether we realize it or not. The things that we worship, that's what we spend our time with. That's what we're present with. And whether we realize it or not, the things that we are worshiping, the things that consume our heart and our time and our attention, they rule over us. We often think that they are choices that we are making. And maybe initially it is to say, I'm giving myself to this. But it, it takes ownership and it rules over us. And I believe much of the frustration and anxiety and difficulty that so many face, even within the church, is without realizing it, we have worshiped the things that this culture has told us are the right things we ought to be aiming at. But because we know Jesus, because we have a relationship with him, we're confused, like why are things out of order? But it's, it's a mixing of gods with idols. It's, it's mixing that with the Lord instead of just realizing. And it's such a gift. That's the thing. I know there's an element of this that's pretty like challenging or convicting, but this is a gift. God's inviting them to flourish. Guys, I wanna be with you. You were made for me and I wanna be with you. And if you'll give me place, everything else gets ordered properly. And all the things you're grasping for, you don't have to grasp for those anymore. You've got me and I've got you and it's gonna be all right. And so the people respond. The Lord says he's with them. And I want to close with the last two verses. And the Lord stirred up. That word stirred, it means awakened. Awakened. 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. So the leadership was stirred up by the Lord. And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the spiritual leadership was stirred up. And the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. They didn't wait for the king of Persia's approval. He had said, don't do it anymore. And they didn't wait for anybody else's approval. They were prompted by God and they obeyed him. And he gave them what they needed. That stirring of their spirits, it means their yes, he then empowered them with everything they needed to walk this out. And they could face all of the enemy opposition that surrounded them and they knew it was gonna be all right because God had called them, God had commissioned them, he was with them and he was empowering them to the work. There's so much I wanna start saying and that's for next Sunday, so I need to stop. In conclusion, can we, can we put these slides up here? I, I'm really only putting these up here so you can jot them down if you want. These are also just some reflections from me. Do your own, but just to give you maybe a place to start. Um, and my notes will be online in a day or two and you can look at them there too. But here's some ways to set our hearts upon our path to consider our ways. What's my overall aim in life? What are my key priorities? Like when I'm setting goals, what am I aiming at? What am I pursuing right now? Who's really in charge is a great question to ask. Who's really in charge? Did God direct me to pursue these things or are they just the things I thought sounded pretty nice? Moving kind of beyond big picture, kind of down a level. What are my daily habits? Consider what the use of my time and my treasure says about my priorities. Not just what do I think my priorities are. If I look at my calendar and I look at my finances, what story do they tell? Because they don't lie. How I fill my time and where I send my money, that, that's just some truth that'll talk right there. Lord, what, what am I doing with my time and my treasure? And then number three, how's my spiritual health? Have I allowed the Lord to finish the work by surrendering my areas of struggle and weakness? Are there things he's still wanting to work on? Not, not is that perfect, but is it submitted to him? Like, am I resisting the things he wants to refine? Am I pretending they're not there? Am I fostering sin? Or, or are, those, are those places submitted to him? Even if I'm still in process, I'm open, I'm real, I'm honest, they're submitted to him. There's, there's some places of reflection. You don't need my questions. Like you can just sit with the Lord and go, Lord, in my heart of hearts, I wanna be honest with you and with myself about the road I'm on. Is there anything you want to show me that I might realign my life, that, that my heart and my life would be your temple where you dwell and you're in charge? Amen? Amen. Lord, would you lead us in this? God, lead us in this individually. Lord, may we operate this way as a people, as a church body. Lord, always um, 
looking to you, being sensitive to you and in your leading, your prompting, your ways. God, thank you that you speak and that you love us. God, that you speak truth and that even the things that are hard that you might say, therefore are healing for our benefit. God, it's your great pleasure to be with us. What a gift that you would dwell with us and we might dwell with you. Guide us into this. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.